Hi, I'm Joe. And I'm Dave. And we're the hosts of the Chasing Tomorrow podcast, where we bring you stories that delve into the science and spirit behind intriguing people doing extraordinary things. Performance Tea has been supporting the Chasing Tomorrow podcast since day one, and they've released a new electrolyte and adaptogen-powered sport mix called Endurance. The lemonade and iced tea flavor are delightful, and it's 70 calories per scoop. The blend is easy on the gut. You can check it out at performancetea.com, and they have given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow podcast. This week, it's episode 74. In September 1997, after narrowly surviving a horrific car accident that shattered nearly all the bones on her right side and a collapsed lung, a punctured liver, and leaving her with a traumatic brain injury, all while being 14 weeks pregnant with her first child, Vicki Hunter, a two hour and 49 minute marathoner, didn't know what was next. Vicki went from an athlete qualifying for the 1988 Olympic marathon trials to not knowing she'll, if she'll ever run again, to running the 2021 Boston Marathon and countless other races from five kilometer distances to 50 mile distances. I'm super excited to talk to her about the running journey, parenting, recovery, perspective, gratitude, life, loss, and with Vicki Hunter. Welcome to the Chasing Tomorrow, Tomorrow podcast, Vicki. Thank you so much, Dave. Joe, it's great to be with both of you. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, we keep our podcast to an hour so that if you're doing a 10K run, you can get the whole thing in. <laughs> but there's probably way more, Vicki, that we won't be able to cover because there's so much right. to your story. Um, you should plug as many times as possible the book you've just completed so people can mm -hmm. get into your story, because there's a journey to write these stories. I know that myself. Um, but I think, you know, you know, Runner's World wrote about you, lots have written about you, but I'd like to introduce you to our listeners with a little bit of the backstory. You know, one of the things that's have a bit of a theme going with some people who grew up a little bit on the East, moved West, made some definitional statement by doing that, and then it evolved. We'll get to the the tragic part of it, but tell us the early story of Vicki Hunter. Oh, the early story starts in suburban Philadelphia, a small town outside of Philadelphia, and that's where I grew up, and it was kind of idyllic for, you know, a kid, I mean, you played in the, you went, basically, when it got light out, you went outside and you played until my mom rang the dinner bell at six o'clock, and then you'd come back in, and we just, you know, ruled the neighborhood it was, you know, all I remember is wanting to be outside and playing and, and running. And I found running, like truly distance running when I was a teenager. And that evolved from trying to escape my mother's depression. My mom was mm -hmm. a very, very sad. And so, you know, a lot goes into kind of what caused that for her, which I won't go into now. But, you know, I felt that it was very palpable in my household. And my parents divorced when I was 10. So I lived with my mother and I had four siblings, but three of them were much older. And so they were kind of out of the house by the time I was a teenager. And 
you know, I was always an athlete. My mom encouraged me to be in sports. My father was pretty athletic. Um, in fact, he came home, I remember in 1972, saying Frank Shorter just won the Olympic marathon gold medal. Mm -hmm. And of course, at 12 years old, I didn't really know what that meant, but he was excited about running. So I kind of started jogging with him and, and then I quickly got the bus. I mean, it made me feel good in contrast to how my mother felt. I mean, my mom spent a lot of time in bed and that to me was just not how I wanted to live my life. So I just gravitated towards it, but I didn't really become a competitive distance runner or even think about competing and running because I was a lacrosse player, tennis player. I played basketball. I did all the sports that kids did back then. And running was kind of something girls weren't necessarily supposed to do. Hmm. I kind of did it almost secretly. I'd wake up in high school before school even started, 5.30 in the morning and run around my neighborhood. And I didn't tell anyone I was doing that. It was just something that made me feel good. And didn't think again about racing or competing until I graduated from college and no longer had the cross as an outlet for my competitive nature, which I am very competitive. And that becomes clearer with my, my story progresses. Um, and then fast forward, I moved to Hawaii after graduation uh, from college, just because I wanted to break. I knew I wanted to go to graduate school, but I thought, you know, I don't want to go right to graduate school. So I moved to Hawaii and got caught up in the triathlon bug over there because, mm -hmm. or at least people were doing these very, uh, they were community oriented races where you'd go down to the beach and people were swimming and running and they were just weekly competitions. And I thought, well, this is fun because I love to swim. And so I, I just started doing those and gradually just got into that kind of solo competition, which I had not done in high school. I didn't really know what that was about, but that kind of lit a fire underneath me. And then I moved to Colorado for graduate school. And lo and behold, I decided to go to Boulder. I became a teaching instructor or teaching assistant as part of my graduate um, program and really got involved in the running community in Boulder. I mean, people, I didn't know at the time how, how I guess, active the professional running community was in Boulder. Mm -hmm. But for some reason, I was able to kind of latch onto that. And I met all the professional runners who were living in Boulder at the time. And just, they were so inviting and so gracious and kind of welcomed me with open arms, even though they had no reason to. I mean, I was not that great a runner. I mean, I liked to run, but I wasn't competitive. My times, I had run the Honolulu Marathon when I was living there. I finished in 4.09. But getting involved with this community in Boulder, a few people asked me if I ever thought about competing in the marathon. And I was like, why <laughs> would they even think that I would be a good marathon runner? But I am a small person, and I guess they saw me running and thought, well, maybe she has some potential. And so, again, I started training with these elite runners. And I was really lucky. Um, a few of them, I mean, Rob DiCostello at the time, who had just won the Boston Marathon, Lorraine Mahler, who went on to win the bronze medal in the Olympics in 1992, um, Rosa Moda, I mean, all these famous runners. And Dave and Priscilla Welch, in particular, were here at the time and Priscilla was a master's runner. I mean, she was from Great Britain. She started running at 36 and then became this 
you know, world-class runner. And Dave, her husband, started helping to coach me, along with my boyfriend at the time, who was a rolfer, and he was massaging all of and working on all of these athletes. So that was somewhat of my in into the group. But mm-hmm. regardless, they all invited me in and they helped kind of train me, I suppose. And the key was the Lydiard method of training, which I didn't even know that's what I was doing at the time. But it started with just building up my mileage mm-hmm. and getting and slowly doing slow running to the point where I could run a lot of miles without being injured. And I was not, I mean, I was a fairly decent runner, but I was plagued with injuries in my early career, as many runners are, because they start running too many miles too fast, or they just jump into it too quickly and mm-hmm. they don't train their tissue to be prepared for long distance running. So I was the classic person who did that. And slowly by kind of backing off from trying to run faster than I should, I built up my mileage. At one point I was running, it's hard for me to believe I did this, but 130 miles a week in -hmm. preparation to try and qualify for the Olympic trials coming up in 1988. Mm -hmm. Now, mind you, I had my marathon PR was 409 when I moved to Colorado. Then I ran the Denver marathon in the following spring and I finished in 350, but I was hobbling across the finish line. I mean, I had a really bad IT band injury, which was still tormenting me. And I just hadn't figured out kind of all the things I needed to figure out. But then I started going into the linear method of training, slowing down my pace, building up my miles, had basically a year of injury-free running. And then I started working on my pace and doing some speed work. Six months later, I went to the Twin Cities Marathon in Minneapolis, St. Paul. That was 1987, October of 1987. And I ran 249, 20, I think it was 249.24. Yeah, my. And Vicki, do you think there would be any way that you would have kind of found that method that quickly if you weren't hanging out with the riffraff? I mean, it, like, it almost sounds like a perfect <laughs> opportunity. Like, you know, you know, you were, you were dating this guy, he was treating all these, you know, elite runners and you, you just, you just came in on your own. It was almost like it was meant to, meant to be. It truly was the perfect storm. I mean, Mm -hmm. and when I say storm, it was because the relationship with that man who he did help me a lot. And I give him a lot of credit. He was an amazing body worker, very gentle soul in, in so many ways, but it was also, he was also an alcoholic. And he had aspirations of being a really good runner and he put those aspirations onto me. So there was a lot of unspoken pressure that I had to deal with and kind of figure out. I stayed with him for three years and I did my running definitely improved, but I also, I think suffered from a lot of, uh, the only word I can think of is it was like there was, he was tormenting me in some ways because what I did was never good enough. I mean, he thought when I qualified for the Olympic trials, well, the next step was making the Olympics. And so whatever I did, it was never quite good enough. And for me, qualifying for the Olympic trials was a dream. I mean, I never in a million years thought I could do that. Mm -hmm. So I extricated myself from that relationship after three years and I really had to go on to find myself again because I had kind of, become lost in that being a competitive runner and letting that define who I was and my sense of worth 
And that was not healthy. <laughs> it was definitely no, not healthy. You know, what's interesting it, you know, we often talk about athletics on this show, but there is a sort of a, a theory that says that we end up being sort of called the average of the five best people we hang out with in our lives. You know, we're highly mm -hmm. influenced and you can average up or down on that. And, mm -hmm. you know, by, I think, you know, one of the messages to our audience always is like, you really do have to pick your friends, so to speak, like who mm -hmm. depends on what you want to be, you know, in that case, you became a runner, like to go from pretty much a four hour marathon to 249 in one year is pretty darn remarkable for anyone to be able to do that, uh, but probably wouldn't happen on your own. And if you want to, for example, I don't know, if you want to mm -hmm. be a business leader, then you should hang out with business leaders and see right. what they do. If you want to be an artist, then hang out with artists. It really does matter because there's so much integration that happens in learning and in relationships and, and pushing each other. Well, I totally, I agree completely because part of what happened was I saw these people who became my friends doing what came naturally to them. And I thought, it, what went through my head was, well, if they can do this, why can't I do this? And I, like I said before, Priscilla Welsh was particularly interesting to me because she was older and the workouts that she did on the track were just unbelievable. I mean, she'd be on the track for two and a half hours. And Dave had me starting to do what she was doing, kind of replicating that. And I took like that to a, a bee to honey. I mean, I loved it. I loved the amount of work. And when I saw my times just dropping week after week after week with seemingly no more effort, it was just happening in this natural way that, I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't work. I mean, running, as you both know, it, there's some work involved, but the ease with which my times were dropping was remarkable to me. And having the support and having those role models made a huge difference. Mm -hmm. And I would say unequivocally, it would not have happened without being in Boulder at that particular time with those particular runners around me and giving me the support that they did. Yeah, so Vicki, you know, your trajectory at this point is right on point. Um, how old are you uh, during the 1988 Olympic marathon trials? I was 28, 28. 28. So that's, you know, your, your trajectory is perfect. Um, things are looking up, things are looking faster, you're getting, you're getting better. Um, you know, how, how were the next many years, um, you know, with the merit marathon trials, um, you know, you know, half marathons, 10 Ks marathons, how did, how did that look? So what happened after the marathon trials, my boyfriend at the time thought that I should, that I didn't do as well as I should have. I ran 252 at the trials, which I was happy with. It was a very hilly course. It was in Pittsburgh. Uh, it wasn't a great race for me. It was not nearly like qualifying for the trials, which kind of, I went, that trials qualification race was just a dream. I mean, I ran really like I was floating in that race. Um, whereas this one, the, the trials were not the same, but I left that race. And then I tried to run a few more road marathons. Uh, in the process, I ended up leaving that relationship. Mm -hmm. And I also realized that I went on to one, one more, well, a couple more road marathons, but the one that I sticks in my mind is in 1991, I went to the Taylor Wineglass Marathon in upstate New York and actually won the race out, you know, I was the first female in that race. And 
that was my first kind of big win. I mean, it was a small race, but just to win a marathon outright was pretty exciting. But I also realized, and I ran about 253, I think, 252 to win that race. But I realized I wasn't going to get any faster at the, on the road. I didn't think I was. But a bunch of my friends in Boulder at the time were also big mountain runners and trail runners. And I would go out with them just on weekends and we'd just play in the mountains. And one time I was out running with a couple of my friends and one of the guys, his name's Paul, and he said to me, what, have you thought about running the Pikes Peak Marathon? Or at first he said the Pikes Peak Ascent. And I thought, what's that? I didn't know. So when you run up this mountain and you go up to 14,000 feet, and I thought, well, that sounds like fun. So I signed up and I was third in my first attempt. And again, it felt easy. It was just, a, I had so much fun in that first year. And I ran and came in third and I just said, trail running is for me. So I switched, really, I, I didn't run another road marathon until 2018 mm. after that Pikes Peak Ascent in 1992. Because I just fell in love with the trail and I gradually increased distances. You know, I ran the Pikes Peak Marathon many years. I switched, I upgraded to 50 mile races, uh, loved trail running and was doing that for many, well, for the next, let's say five years met my now husband and he was an Ironman triathlete and he was also like doing 50 mile runs. So one of our first travel trips dates was uh, to the superior, superior trail 50 mile race that we both won that first year we went and we kind of were both on the same page about competing mm -hmm. and we had that same love for being out, mm -hmm. being out in the mountains and just running for as long as we could. Mm -hmm. uh, so we got married in 1997 and I got pregnant very quickly, but I was still, I was in very good shape. I mean, in 96 was when we both won that 50 mile race. So I was in marathon shape. Mm -hmm. And when I found out I was pregnant, it didn't really slow me down that much. Probably not as much as it should have. And at 14 weeks, I was driving home. We, he and I lived in the mountains up above mm -hmm. Boulder. And I was driving home by myself because we had been out on the town and we had both driven to town separately to our respective jobs. And I passed out at the wheel and basically went off the road or I didn't even, I have no memory of the accident. I have complete amnesia around the accident, but I did go off the road. Fortunately, it was at the top of the road and I went into a field, but my car hit a tree hmm. and what you just, you know, described at the beginning, Dave, is where, how all those injuries happened. Yeah. The car smashed in on the right side of my body and broke almost every bone on the right side of my body, except my arms and my, like, my limbs were not mm -hmm. broken. But all my ribs, um, almost all my ribs on the right side, my sacrum, my pubic bone, I was a mess. Mm -hmm. And I was in the hospital for six weeks after that with a baby in my belly. And I did have a remarkable recovery. And the doctors did say the first 48 hours were pretty critical, but they told my husband that if I had not been in such good shape, mm -hmm. had the lungs of a marathoner, I probably wouldn't have made it. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, so I- During those six weeks, uh, sorry, Vicki, uh, but in yeah, the hospital ahead. during those six weeks, you know, what was, what's going through your mind? Um, now, of course, you know, the, the health and, and welfare of your, your unborn child. Um, 
you know, also your, your future, you know, you're, 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 you're used to using your body. Most people don't really use their bodies as much as, as people like you, but you, you've found great joy. You found um, a way of, 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 of discovering with your body. Are you wondering, okay, am I going to be able to run? Am I going to be able to walk? Am I going to be using my body? Am I going to be, you know, crippled the rest of my life? What are some of the concerns that you're having? Dave, I really appreciate that question because in the writing of the book, which, you know, now the accident was 24 years ago, and I've been writing the book for the last five years. So I've had to dig deep and kind of think back to that time and, and try to recall some of what I was thinking and feeling during that time. It's complicated a little bit because I did have a traumatic brain injury. Mm-hmm. So, you know, when I woke up in the hospital the next morning after the accident, it happened at 9.30 at night. And again, I have no memory from that. Well, I have no memory from the time I got in the car to drive home to waking up in the hospital. And my first thought was that I was in a bike accident. Mm. And my husband had to repeatedly tell me that that's not what happened. Mm. And what the doctor said is definitely the 12-hour amnesia was a protective mm-hmm. thing that happened in my brain. Right. So I didn't have to relive that accident which is a blessing and I will be forever thankful for that amnesia because of that. But also my thinking was fairly fuzzy and that lasted for almost three months. The Hmm. fuzziness. I mean, at first my vision was, I could barely see like a foot in front of me. I was very blurry. My hearing, I had some hearing loss, so I couldn't see. I couldn't speak because I had a tube down my throat. So, you know, my memories of, of, at first, we're just, it's kind of a, I don't know, it's all fuzzy in my brain mm-hmm. about what I was feeling. But at a time where I knew I was pregnant, I mean, I knew there was a baby. And that was the first thing I thought about, you know, when I woke up was, is the baby okay? Mm-hmm. So I remember thinking that, but I also, it was, even that was kind of hazy, that feeling, because, and then I was in so much pain. I mean, the pain, mm-hmm was beyond description everything hurt so any movement hurt i couldn't if i i mean i tried not laughing was not really in the picture at first but friends would come and visit and they would try to be lighthearted. and if if there was even a remote attempt to laugh i was it was painful Hmm. so i couldn't so so at first i was just thinking about surviving the day i mean it was not long term at all. And then, you know, pretty quickly, I started thinking about wanting to move. And I did try and get out of bed fairly quickly. But it was so painful, I could, I couldn't get to the bathroom by myself. I mean, my husband had to help me. I mm-hmm. couldn't go to the bathroom by myself. I mean, I needed help to do everything. So at first, it was just getting through each moment trying to deal with the pain and I didn't want the drugs but at the same time there was there was no choice for those first couple of weeks so they had me on morphine and that kind of dulled things but I was I was not sleeping well but I was kind of out of it for much of the time so let's say so for two and a half weeks I was in intensive care and that time was very intense and I wasn't thinking too much far into the future but I do remember having one very specific thought when I was in intensive care. And that was, as long as the baby is healthy, I don't care if I ever run again. Mm-hmm. And I remember 
thinking that. If I, if it's okay, if I don't run again, if the baby is healthy. Hmm. Um, and that was one of my first thoughts about the future. But then I will be honest, that changed pretty quickly. As soon as I started being able to move and get a little bit more mobility, my goal became to get better. I still wasn't thinking about running. I mean, that wasn't it. But I was thinking I wanted to be healthy enough to raise this child. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to get my body back. So as a runner, especially a marathon runner, think I just kind of put the birth date or the due date as my goal. That was that was the race I was pointing for. And everything I did pointed toward that goal. Mm -hmm. So it was each day trying to do something more towards my recovery. A little bit more movement, a little bit more, you know, I was trying to get my brain back at the same time too. So trying to understand what was going on around me. That was very frustrating for someone who has a PhD to not understand what was happening around me. I would get very frustrated. So, and then I felt sorry for my husband too, who went from having a wife who, you know, was a college professor teaching at the college level to someone who was, you know, basically an invalid. So I really felt for him during that time as well. And I wanted to get better for both Brian and my baby. You know, the, of course, uh, can't encapsulate everything in a short period of time that you went through, but, you know, I'm struck by this idea of resiliency, you know, in a lot of the people we talk to and, you know, that the system that we operate here, this body and brain and beingness is, it has an inherent resiliency in it. Um, mm -hmm. The question is, do we tap into it, right? And right. what was it that, you know, sort of like gave you, because you were already a resilient person having gone through the marathons and all of that. Mm -hmm. Do you think mm -hmm. that even though it's not direct, but you sort of had trained yourself a little bit to be resilient, that this was going to be just another battle that you would take on and, and maybe four or five more in your lifetime have you created that inside yourself by the way that you lived which gave you even more of an opportunity you know again I think it goes back I so appreciate these questions because it, it's getting me to reconnect to the process I experienced while writing the book of going back in my life and thinking you know what did cause me to make these choices and to choose this path and I look back to when my parents split up when I was 10. And, you know, that was a profound moment in my life as a child. You know, your parents are splitting up. And I know a lot of times the reaction to that is a child can go inward, blame themselves, think something's, you know, why would the parents split up if there's not something wrong with me? And I did not go there. I mean, I, I just started looking forward. I remember being very sad when my parents told me the news, but I also didn't dwell on it. And what happened was three weeks after they told us they were splitting up, that it was me and my younger sister at the time because the older siblings weren't around, but I went to school and I was acting out in class. And I tell this story in the book. And my teacher who said, this is not normal for Vicki, he called me out into the hallway and he said, you know, what's going on? And I broke down into tears. And of course he knew, my parents had told him that they were splitting up and you know that something you know I guess they were preparing him or they just wanted him to be aware and he basically said to me it was okay I think he hugged me 
And this was back in the 70s and you know, the teacher wasn't gonna get in trouble for doing that. <laughs> and so uh, he hugged me and, and I will tell you, I never cried about it again. I was able to let go, move forward with my life. I, I, I don't know what it was about me, but I recognized that that was my parents' decision and it was about their lives and not about mine. And I decided I was just gonna move forward with my life and be as positive as I could and, and set goals for myself that kind of led me on a path that I wanted to be on, which was one of, you know, achievement and seeking things that made me happy. Because I saw how unhappy they were and I just did not want that in my life. So I think that set the tone for the rest of my life. I mean, my sports career in high school, going on to get a PhD, qualifying for the trials, things that I've tried to achieve have been all about you know, there's a competitive part of me, but it's also about just what there's a, a drive in me, I guess, to keep mm-hmm. trying to see how, what I can do. Yeah. And, and Vicki, you know, what, what something that struck me about your story is, is, is just really ultimately about acceptance and resilience and how the two, um, you know, really speak together yeah. and intertwine. And I think, you know, I remember I was talking to Joe about this, you know, and, you know, you know, months and months ago about how, you know, you know, maybe ultimately this COVID business, this pandemic and, and, and that, you know, kids have to give something up during mm-hmm. this time might ultimately be really, really, really good down the road for these kids, because, you know, for many generations, these kids really haven't had to give up too much. And so when you end up having to give up something in your youth, there's an opportunity there for acceptance. And let's face it, there's a lot of families that are separating, that are going through divorces and kids that are going to have to come to the realization that, okay, this isn't exactly what I want, but I, I have to accept this. And that acceptance that you learned at an early age, and let's face it, you know, the three of us that are talking, we're all marathon runners, we're ultra runners, and maybe one of the very best lessons we can all learn and moving forward is sometimes you don't always get what you want. And, you know, well, a couple of weeks ago, I was running that you know, big backyard and, and you know what, you know, time and, you know, lap after lap, it's not really necessarily what you want, but it's acceptance for what, where you are in the moment and moving forward. So let's move uh, back to your recovery. Um, you know, when you were in the hospital, do you think that maybe, you know, that lesson when you were 10 years old, and then of course you're, you're running and you're training, Maybe you ultimately prepared you perfectly for that moment when you broke, you know, you know, countless bones in your body, punctured lung, everything. And you had to ultimately accept where you were, but then acknowledge where you want to be. So I think this is such a key point for so many people, for so many things that we experience in life. And Mm. yes, Dave, in the hospital, I didn't spend much time trying to figure out why it happened. Mm -hmm. I mean, I just accepted it. And maybe the 12-hour amnesia helped with that because I couldn't analyze, like, what did I do wrong on the drive home? I I had no resources to do that and figure it out. I just decided it happened. I have to accept it. This is where my body is right now. It's certainly not where I wanted it to be. I mean, besides wanting to be strong, as I was used to being, having a baby inside of me was the last place I wanted to be, but I had to accept it, move on, and 
I did, I took from that point when I did understand what was going on, I was just looking forward to each day waking up and doing what I can, could from that perspective. So even, so the first three weeks I was in, well, two and a half weeks, I was in intensive care. And then they moved me to a therapy hospital, a rehab hospital. And I had made some progress. I was still in a wheelchair at that point when I got to the rehab hospital. And I remember feeling pretty good. Like I was making, no, I wasn't feeling good, but I was making progress and I wasn't in quite as much pain, but I went off the morphine. I said, and I just went cold turkey. I said, I'm not going to take this anymore. I don't want to harm the baby. And I just don't want it in my body anymore. Mm -hmm. So I stopped and you would think the, the pain level would go up just from that. And I think there was a degree of that, but also being in the rehab hospital, they had me moving more. So there was one day where I had an experience. I was trying to stand up out of the wheelchair and the pain was so excruciating. I let out an ear piece, ear piercing scream. I mean, I was just, it was horrendous. And my husband happened to be there at the time. He wasn't there constantly with me, but he was in the room when that happened. And it was, I could have said, oh my God, this is horrible. You know, I'm never going to feel better. I'm going to just go backwards. And mm -hmm. the nurses were pretty concerned because they don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear people mm -hmm. screaming in their wards. No. So the head nurse's response was she has to stop her water therapy, which I was getting into a pool every day to recover. And I said, absolutely not. I need to move. I need, that's the only thing that is going to heal me. And I knew I just had to keep moving forward despite that pain. And it was an acceptance of this is where I'm at now. My body is responding. It maybe not the way I want it to right now, but if I keep trying to make progress, it's going to come around. Mm -hmm. And gradually it did. I mean, that's yeah. what happened. You know what? There's just, just too many life lessons in the middle of this discussion. You know, I just want to put a pin in this one thing you said, you know, when your parents divorced, you realized that was them, that wasn't you. We mm -hmm. conflate too much in life and we transfer other people's issues to ourselves. And, mm -hmm. and we really benefit when we can separate that. So that, you know, is amazing for a 10 year old to be able to do that. But for anyone listening, you know, that the other people's problems in this world are not ours. It doesn't mean we might not try to help them or do something yeah. about it, but we cannot own them because that's not the burden. We're not here to carry the burden because we all have to be, you know, independent and, you know, and belong and feel good about ourselves. So that, that's just a, a call out for, for everyone listening. The, the thing that's also interesting, you know, often in recovery is that I, we've all been through this, Dave, me, anyone who's done hard stuff, you've found sometimes where you have to recover. We've had broken bones and so on. There's sometimes where others can't see the pain because they can't internalize. They can only feel this sort of angst for you. But if mm -hmm. you can sort of grab it yourself and know that in fact, this is how I'm helping myself, you know, like that nurse was externalizing this fear that something was happening. Yeah. You know, no, it isn't. That, that is a misinterpretation. It's again, it's like uh, I had done this Ironman and I fell in the middle of the race and I broke my ribs and my kneecap and all this stuff. And, you know, and I remember in the recovery that I really didn't want too many people around because they would have reacted poorly. 
but I could work through it. Mm -hmm. And, and it, so there is sometimes where that is a technique again, because then you're at peace because you know what you're dealing with. I don't know if that resonates. No, I love Joe. I love the word technique. It is a technique. I mean, we can learn how to deal with these traumas. For me, the accident, yes, it was a physical trauma, but it also held, you know, there was a lot of emotional trauma, identity stuff I had to, you know, think about, like, was I no longer going to be the marathon runner that I thought I was, this distance runner, and that, I had to go deep. It wasn't just about that physical pain, but acceptance, you know, Dave, what you spoke to, and then finding, I think, a technique that allows you to feel the pain. I, I think people try to avoid the pain, mm. whether it's physical or emotional, it's very hard to move through it. And, you know, Joe, you mentioned before, it, the accident is one example of something pretty traumatic I've been through. I've gone through other things too, you know, later in my life after this. And, you know, I wanted to think after the accident that, oh, you know, I've evolved. I, I now understand it. I'm not going to go back into that, mm -hmm. that kind of, you know, tunnel vision life that I was somewhat leading before the accident, but that's not true. I did go back yeah. into some of that. Yeah. And once you're, you know, Vicky, sorry to interrupt you for a second, but yeah. once, once we all think that we're, once we're arrogant enough to think that we got it all figured out, you know, life yeah. smacks us upside the face and gives us something else to figure out, doesn't it? Yes, it does. And yeah. parenting, you know, I was just about to become a parent, right? Mm. So, mm -hmm. and the parenting I've done now for the last 24 years, the baby in my belly is turning 24 in March. Um, my younger one is just about to turn 21. I have learned more from being a parent to my beautiful girls than I have from anything else in my life. I mean, it's really been where my evolution, I think, has come from. And it hasn't all been pretty. I mean, I'm I've, by no means have I been a perfect parent. I've made a lot of mistakes and but my husband and I have kind of stuck through it and worked through some of the real challenging moments together. And again, it's what has threatened to break us apart has ultimately brought us back together. So my oldest daughter had a drug addiction problem in high school that was probably harder than anything else I've dealt with in my life. And the running and returning story is also her story. It's not just about me returning to my true self. It's about her finding her way as well. And it's been truly a lesson in, in I think how to live to our, and be our true self, find our true self. Um, and maybe we spend a lifetime doing that, but as long as it's part of our consciousness that we are trying to come back to who we really are, what, what really matters rather than the external stuff, that to me is what's important. And that's what I'm trying to get across in the book. So, you know, all my, all my running times and the fact that I qualified for the trials, I'm proud of that. Don't get me wrong. I'm proud of my Boston Marathon time, you know, from a month ago, but it's just in the overall scheme of life, those things don't really matter. Well, the, you know, yeah. Vicky, like there are lessons learned, you know, it's, it's a long mm -hmm. list of life experiences um cause and effects um yeah at different times and and you lean towards what you know and you know i think yeah. that a lot yeah. of the time that you, you know you, that story that you you told me about your teacher and 
when you were 10 years old and the acceptance piece, um, yeah. that pro it's probably mirrored quite a bit in, in your daughter's drug addiction uh, issues during, during high school. And probably now you return to, um, to, to marathon running at the Boston Marathon in 2021. So, so let's talk about recently and, and where are you at now in the last couple of years when it comes to running, racing, family, life? How's your daughter doing? My daughter's doing well. I'm going to take us one step back. So when she, when we did Please. find out what was going on with her, um, mm -hmm. you know, teenage years are, can be tough. And I remember someone telling me that when my, my girls were young and I was like, ah, oh, that, it won't be that for us. Mm -hmm. We have, I have a great relationship with my girls and it's going to be a piece of cake. I really did think that I just mm -hmm. had no inkling of how challenging it would be. And I think every family dynamic is different every child is different but my daughter did struggle with self-esteem issues she struggled in school uh, and I being the proactive person I am I took every opportunity I could to help her through that I tried to accept where she was at the time but I also look back and I think maybe I didn't maybe I wanted her I wanted her to succeed in school because that's what I knew and School was just not where she felt at home. And she had struggled to find who she was in that environment. So we, she switched. She actually went to four different high schools uh, by the time we found a home for her. Uh, and when we found out that she was having a drug problem, this was, she was almost 18 when we finally figured it out. And it became a, um, not a game, but a puzzle. Like, how are we going to help her through this? And I truly treated it the same way I treated my recovery from my accident. We wanted to get from point A to Z. I mean, we wanted to take her through her recovery, but we had to accept where she was and she was not in a good place. So we had to start from there, not thinking, and I think I was in a little bit of denial that she was having these problems. And maybe that's why we didn't find out until we did. When we did figure it out, you know, we took her to a rehab hospital for, it wasn't a long stay. It was a, just, it was actually just a hospital where they had a mental uh, ward for teenagers. So we took her there. And then the next step was, well, where does she go from there? Do we take her to a rehab place? Does she go to one of those wilderness programs? I mean, it was really trying to figure that out. We ended up bringing her home and just my husband and I kind of helped her Basically, we had rehab in the Hunter household of, you know, she was, we had her exercising. We had her coming to yoga classes with us. We had her going back to school and she had to ultimately make the choice of what she wanted to do. She did not want to go to a rehab program that took her away where she wouldn't be able to graduate with her high school class on time. Mm. So she worked her tail off to finish everything. and she got sober that semester and it was I mean such a journey but I give her a lot of credit for deciding she was just going to start taking the steps to get herself better and I don't know where she found the playbook because she certainly didn't know my story I mean, she was in my belly when I was recovering from that accident so she doesn't know what I did but it's almost like she did know just because she was living through it with me of how to get herself back on track. Hmm. And she had our support, which I think really helped. So, 
so she graduated high school on time. She has since traveled. We she went on many trips to Nepal. She lived in Kenya for three months. My ne my nephew lives there, and she did some volunteer work. She has recently started her own business. Uh, she's doing very well, hmm. and as a result, I think in the last few years, I've been able to I think for the first time relax. For the first time since. My girls were in high school. I think I've been able to let go a little bit and suddenly I feel better than I felt. I think at almost 61, I feel better than I certainly did about eight years ago when she was kind of starting her teenage years and starting to leave us. I mean, she really did leave us in a way that I can't, I can only describe by saying, I didn't know who she was from the time she was 13 to 18. I would look at her and I would say, who, I don't know who this person is. And that was really disconcerting to a parent. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. And I think sometimes teenagers do hide themselves from their parents. I think I did to a certain degree with my mother because of all the struggles there. But knowing now I, I'm seeing her again has been liberating for me. So as a result, my running is better than it's ever been, mm. or it's been. In the last few years, I'm, I am running really well. And I think it's because I'm running with a freedom in my body that I didn't have for a little while. Yeah, you were using a so, lot of energy um, pointed towards her. So you were 70% of what was possible because you had this background process running all the time, thinking about her, taking care of her, trying to yeah. see how you could indeed, you know, be whatever you could be for her. And, and sometimes it's the hardest thing. It's we, I, all of us have to watch, you know, some failure in others, friends, family, yeah. work, relationships, because it's, it's not ours to be able to take on that burden. Right. Mm -hmm. And I don't take the credit. I don't think my husband and I saved her. I think she saved herself. Hmm. You bet. But we, we were there to give her the, the parachute, I suppose, and the support to help lift her out of this, you know, when you think your child doesn't want to live anymore, it's the hardest thing ever to hear and to live through. Mm -hmm. But just the other day, she said to me, she loves her life. She's happy. And she, she really reconfirmed where I think she's at. And she told me point blank. Yes, I'm, mom, I am happy to be here. I love my life. And when I heard those words, I thought, okay, I, whatever happens, it's like life isn't going to be perfect. We all know life is full of pain. And mm -hmm. I think part of that is, as we spoke about, it's acceptance that that is the case. And then figuring out techniques to help you get through that pain, whatever it is. Yeah. And ultimately, you know, the credit has to go to the survivor. The credit has to go yeah. to the person ultimately making the choices. And we guide as parents, you know, the three of us are all parents. Yeah. Um, yeah. My parents are a bit younger. My, sorry, my children are a bit younger, 15, 12, and 10. Mm -hmm. And, but, you know, ultimately they're the ones that are deciding for themselves. And, and, but really, you know, I think the best thing that we could do as parents is, is, is warriors are, 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 you know, have parents as warriors. And so, yeah. you know, Vicki, I think that you've, you've created quite a, a table mat for, um, and, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a map 
for your children to to get through these things because it's not a matter of in my in my opinion it's not a matter of are you going to have hard things come upon you it's when are they going to come and how do you how do you combat them and so now you know returning to 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 running and taking a lot of that energy and time kind of pulling Mm -hmm. it back for yourself is running different now are you running with a sense of of gratitude are you running with a sense of of joy that you maybe didn't have before are you finding more of that i think i am i think i'm i've returned somewhat using that same metaphor to why i originally started running which was mm-hmm. because of how good it made me feel mm-hmm. i mean it, it truly gave me joy it allowed me to feel the energy i could create in my own body that i could back when i was 10 i could see my mother was doing the opposite of that so finding that was huge and i would like to say dave that that is truly where i'm at completely but it's not complete i am still a very competitive person Mm -hmm. and i still like running fast (laughs) and i still like being competitive and winning you know at least placing in my age group i mean that is fun for me and it drives me somewhat so I would say I'm enjoying my running more than ever in, in many ways because it truly is, I recognize how much it feeds my soul and I love it for that. I do think that I am much better at recognizing before it happens, whether I'm about to get injured or sick or I'm, I'm much more balanced in my running and my training. So I've been pretty injury free for a while and that feels good, but I still like to be competitive. So that's still out there and I haven't let go of that completely. Uh, I'm actually running a cross country race in two days here in Boulder. It's the Colorado championship. And even though I didn't run cross country in high school or college, I found it as an adult and I love it. And I put together a team and it's just, it's so much fun for me. So I'm still doing that kind of thing. So I have a 5K cross-country race this Saturday. And then the next like event that I have is in January in Hawaii on the big island. This is the next big, I mean, I'll probably do a, maybe some smaller things, but in January, there's a race up in, um, it's in the town of Volcano on the big island. And it's at the Volcano Winery. And it's such a unique event. It's a little over a mile loop. And you do as many laps as you can in, an, in six hours. I mean, there's a three-hour race, too. I'm going to do the six-hour race. I did it last year. I did 28 laps. It's very technical. It's all on trail. You have to climb up. There's one part where you're, you're actually climbing over a crevasse that is a, you know, it's from the volcano. It's a break in the earth. And you have to climb up on a rope, you know, that's hung from a tree and get over it. So it's super fun. I love it. So I'm doing that in January. Pretty cool. Yeah, yeah the, so cool. a lot of that that can uh, come to be when I think, you know, I keep thinking about Maslow's hierarchy as we've talked all night long, you know, that, you know, self-esteem is in the middle of the hierarchy on the way to self-actualization and yeah. bounce back and forth between them because they're just parts of how we develop and evolve. And mm-hmm. so I think that that, personal satisfaction is as much about self-esteem as anything. And that's important. We have to love ourselves and figure out how we do that, whatever way we mm-hmm. feel that we have 
you know, optimize how we use our system to our advantage. And those are the choices we get to make. Um, but yeah, I do think that over time, we can move it out of that and into this sort of, I think Vicky, you and I talked one of these times about is how do we then help others on their journey because of yeah. what we've learned. And I think for me, the competitive part of it is not beating other people, it's seeing how, what I can do. And, you know, in my 60s now, there is this sense that I still have a lot of running in me. Mm -hmm. And I like that feeling and I like that I can still do it. And the other thing, I don't know, Dave, if you know this, I think I spoke with Joe about it, but I teach something called foundation training, which is a postural alignment program, which I love sharing with people because I do attribute a lot of my longevity and my injury-free years recently to doing this practice. And it helps me you know, stand taller on the earth and just feel better in my body and be more balanced. And that practice, along with, you know, doing a lot of other things to support my body and my mind uh, are things that I want to share with people because I don't think age has to limit us. I mean, certainly we, it limits certain things. I'm not going to be in denial about that, but I think it limits us less than most people understand. Well, yeah, and I think it, 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 yeah, it, it limits you a lot less than what, what, you know, what, what's perceived out there, but it also gives, yeah. I think it gives you an opportunity. It's yeah. an opportunity that, you know, you've learned a hell of a lot more than, than any 25 year old runner, uh, because you're a 25 year old runner run, you know, learning those things once too. And mm -hmm. so when it comes to, yeah, postural alignment, uh, nutrition, I was reading a lot about mm -hmm a lot of your nutritional beliefs and ideas and and you know you were well ahead of the curve uh when you when it came to the clean eating um uh, you know mm -hmm. you know not the fad but you know we now know in order to to drive that engine you need to be consuming a b and c back then yeah you know we just didn't know that so you know right. yeah the, you're, you know you're, you're, you know, at the age of, you know, being over the age of 60, it provides an opportunity. And maybe that's exactly what you're doing with your book as well, too, is this is a learning opportunity for others that they don't have to learn it the hard way. So, so let's talk a little bit about your book. What's your book called again? It's called Running and Returning, Three Generations of Women Seeking Balance in an Imperfect World. Hmm. <laughs> you don't know about that. So that almost summarizes a little bit too much there, Vicky. You know, like, mm -hmm. yeah. I, know. Yeah. I know, I thought about that. But running and returning is really the, yeah. the theme, which, you know, it took five years of writing. That, that was not the original title. Uh, the title has changed over the years, but it took kind of figuring out my evolution and the fact that I was using running initially to run away from my mother's sadness and the sadness that enveloped mm -hmm. my household. Um, at the same time, it helped me return to my true self and helped me find a good feeling. But then over the years, there's been times where I've kind of run away from my true nature, my true self, kind of what's important. And then it's returning to that sense of self and sense of what's really important. And I had to kind of go through the whole writing of the book to figure out that that's what it was about, to be honest. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, talking about my mother's story, my mom was an amazing woman. 
but she was a product of her times. And when she was growing up, I mean, she was born in 1930, you know, for women, there weren't many options. And she thought that having kids and getting married would make her happy. And it didn't, it didn't. And so she sought many other ways to kind of soothe herself and they weren't healthy things. Mm -hmm. And then, as I've mentioned with my daughter, you know, she also struggled with who she, you know, finding herself. And I think drugs were an escape for her. That's what she used to run away. And then I think she has been coming back to her true self using many different things. Exercise, she's become a runner, which I have to say I'm very proud of. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Both my, yeah, so that, I love that, that she, you know, yeah. is connecting with that piece. When will the book be out? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I have a publisher. I, I have an editor who I'm, I've worked with really closely over the last few years. And I have one offer from a publisher, but my editor and I are still kind of working through whether this is the direction we want to go or if I go with someone else. But I'm still in negotiations. But I'm hoping you know, within the next year that it can, it comes out. And I don't want to truly, I don't want to self-publish it I, completely. I want the support of a publisher and we'll see how that evolves. Because the publishing industry is tough. Is <laughs> another piece I'm finding out. It's like I wrote the book, but now this is like a whole nother race trying to get to the finish line of this, the publishing piece. So yeah. I'm hoping over the next year. Okay. Yeah, and you know, Vicky, you know, like overall, when I hear your story, I think about your journey is is just inspiring, and your flow is contagious. Um, oh. You know, I I I I, I love I've, I've I've just so loved this hour talking to you, and and like our our podcast, we you know we kind of round out the conversation by by asking something, um, which is ultimately what's your chasing tomorrow, what's what's next. For you, Vicky, and and you know more so than than you know a lot of our other guests. Uh, not nothing against them. I love I love every guest that comes on, but I love your story, and I'm you know you. really just I can't wait to turn the page and 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 hear about what's what's next for Vicky. Well, thank you so much for all of that, and um, it's been a pleasure to talk to both of you. You know, I've thought about this question because I have, I love listening to your podcast. So hmm. I've heard you ask it to other people and I've thought about it and I have, I almost have two answers. Like one is for me, my whole life, I've been impatient. You know, it's about getting to tomorrow and I'm trying now to not do that, to be more in the present moment. And instead of thinking about what's next, really be more present more present with my children, more present with my husband, more present with myself. And so I'm taking more time in each of my days to not think about what's next, to just be here. On the other hand, I'm still a planner and I still like <laughs> to think about things in the future. And I would say for me, probably the most important thing is getting this book out there. I mean, beyond any of my athletic pursuits because I know I'm going to do that. I mean, I'm not going to stop running and I have competitive events, but I do want this book to see the light of day because I do want to share this story because I think athletes, parents, anyone living through difficult times, I think will 
will benefit or at least not feel alone because I've been through some really tough stuff mm -hmm. and I want people to know that it's okay. You get, you can get through it. Mm -hmm. So that would be my next, that, my chasing tomorrow is sharing this story. We love that. Story well, story. For everyone who got to listen today, I'm sure they were captivated. And if they were in the car, they might have had to just pull over just to concentrate because this was amazing. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, we'll stay in touch, Vicki. Appreciate so much your time, your story, your resilience, who you are, what you've done for all the people around you, and now even more broadly. Uh, you're amazing. And thanks for being on thank, the show. Thank you both so much. It's been such a pleasure. Thank you, Vicki. Dave, Vicky really is an amazing person. I mean, her ability to persevere is impressive and an example of the power of the human spirit. I mean, she's way more than a runner, and it's cool to see how she integrated life and running together for performance reasons as much as life balancing reasons. I mean, that's a theme I think we all understand. Okay, well, that's a wrap for this week. As always, a big shout-out to our sponsor, Performance Tea. You should check out their new endurance electrolyte blend. It's amazing. You can find them on www.performancetea.com and they've given us a discount code for any of our listeners to get 20% off their purchase. Just use Chasing20 at checkout. And we'd greatly appreciate it if you could give us a review on Apple Podcasts. That would be awesome. As always, a huge thanks to our listeners for coming with us on this journey and chasing tomorrow with us. Thanks. Thanks.